Hello, hello, and welcome to Streetwise, the podcast companion to The Pitch from KC, uh, covering everything in our great city, from the best to the worst to everything in between. I'm your host, Brock Wilbur. Thrilled to be back again this week. Uh, We're just going to keep doing these uh, until uh, somebody lets me out of my house. And then we'll keep doing them. It'll be fun. We'll just, uh, we'll keep going that way. Uh, How are things with you? Uh, Things here are getting better. I'm going to... I'm better. Uh, it's been enough weeks now that we're just getting used to it in such a way that I'm 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 becoming okay. I uh, I no longer have the weird addict twitch of needing to get out of the house and be around people. I am sitting in the backyard in the sunshine. I've gotten more sunshine in the last week and a half than I have in the last year of my life. It's just been really for an indoor kid. It's been a been a good time to just uh, sit out there. Uh, completely alone. Um, I have a neighbor uh, who I'd never really uh, walked by their house before. Uh, they have a number of cars in their driveway, and the cars are simply covered in bumper stickers. And I've never, I, I don't really try to pay attention. I've noticed it before, didn't try to pay attention, because the last thing I want to do, especially in a time where I'm only surrounded with the people closest to me, uh, is to look at the bumper stickers and realize that we have some serious political differences and be like, well, F those people, you know, you get it. Uh, and this time I, I, I finally really paid attention to what was on the back of the car. And it's, it's just dozens and dozens of stickers that say basically nothing. It's not, it's nothing political, but it's also nothing about any sort of clubs they're in or any, any interests or any like places they've gone. It's just all stuff that you would have found in a sticker dispenser machine at Pizza Hut in the 90s just uh or or something from Hot Topic it just says like nasty girl or cool like as as generic as you can be I was like oh none of these are really the uh the conversation starter I was hoping I would uh find here I don't know how to start a conversation over the fence with them at some point if all I know is that uh one of the women that lives there is is nasty seems I don't know not not my greatest line in for that. The city seems to be doing pretty good. Uh, we, uh, we we made it through Easter uh, with uh, Kansas lawmakers finally at the last minute doing the right thing and saying, hey, maybe people uh, shouldn't wind up in church. There are a couple of national stories breaking right now about churches that uh, didn't want to hop on the bandwagon of doing the right thing and uh, all the people getting sick and dying. So that's that's a, a neat problem that we avoided by being smarter than them, and I, I appreciate everyone who did that. I know that uh, sometimes you feel like uh, you, you're supposed to do this, and there's no excuse for it, and I, I really, truly think that God's giving permission to everyone right now to take a pass on some things. I mean, don't do a murder. We still have murders happening in this city, and I don't think he's forgiving that, but like everything that's about halfway under murder, you know, you're you're allowed to drink a little too much right now, and... Uh, Boy, after these stimulus stimulus checks come, uh, you know, if you want to fudge on your taxes a little bit, I feel like this is the right year to do it. Anyway, uh, a lot of interesting things around Kansas City this week. Uh, Beignet closed in uh, City Market uh, just out of nowhere. No real reason given. That's a pretty big loss to the city. Not, not the biggest fan of that. Um, our stay-at-home order has uh, extended into May. Uh, I imagine that won't be the end of it, but we'll see what happens from there. Um, extending off of that, Boulevardia got canceled. 
Uh, we're all exceptionally sad about that. Saw that first thing this morning. And then immediately after that, saw that uh, Boulevard has a partnership with PlayStation to promote the upcoming game, The Last of Us uh, Part 2. Uh, the Last of Us is an incredible post-apocalyptic game. I've been waiting for the sequel for years now. The sequel, due to coronavirus, has been pushed back on release, but the beer hasn't. So the, the tie-in beer from Kansas City uh, to this giant international AAA video game is going to beat the game to market. So I, I'm very excited to see uh, what comes with that. We've had a lot of local companies that are doing incredible work. You look for the helpers. You look to see who's doing what. There's uh, a number of printing shops, uh, a number of people around the manufacturing world that they've all pivoted into making PPE and medical masks that are available for either purchase or they're doing large donations to our local hospitals and first responders. It's truly incredible because it means that not only are they using what they have to help the community, they're also keeping their businesses open and keeping all their employees employed, uh, which is a, a it's. It's so fascinating to see what people are doing to be creative, to get through this thing that we have no official end date on. Uh, it's always good when it's helping people. For example, uh, we at The Pitch, uh, we have started selling a coloring book. Yes, uh, we went into the coloring book business. That's that's a thing that we sell. You can download it online, or we now have the option that you can buy it from a print shop. They'll send it to you. You don't have to worry about having a printer or doing, doing any of that. And here's the thing. Uh, we're running an online coloring book contest. So if you color in a page and you think, wow, I did a pretty good job with this, you should upload it there because the winner of the coloring book contest is going to be the cover of our next issue. So we're pretty excited about that. And we'd also love to have as many, as many options as possible there. And the original pages in the coloring book are all done by local KC artists. Um, so we're splitting all of the profits uh, from this with them. So some of it goes to support journalism. Some of it goes to support artists that uh, are not in a position to be able to do art right now. The books are really incredible. I am having a great time with a coloring book, uh, something I was not expecting to be doing right now. Uh, some local businesses are going out of their way to really help people. Grand Slam spent a whole day selling gas for 99 cents a gallon uh, for anyone that was uh, frontline essential worker, but also just really for anyone that wanted to come out just to thank you for staying in, which, uh, I, I, I like that we're all appreciating what happens there. I also got a chance this week to interview Jen Takahashi. Uh, Jen runs the Twitter account best of next door, which some of you might've seen. Uh, it's a giant, well-beloved Twitter account that takes screenshots from next door accounts around the country. Uh, of of what happens when neighbors communicate with each other and how odd that can get. It's very, very funny, but it also coincides with this time now uh, where uh, an app based on talking to the people near you uh, really means something in a way that like Facebook or Twitter or anything else that isn't so location restricted can't. Uh, it's a great place for people to find folks in their neighborhood that maybe they've never talked to that could use a helping hand and to to work together on some things it's it's a it's a wildly uplifting little interview uh despite also having a number of stories about uh just the weirdest worst things that people can do online uh people can say absolutely anything that they want and uh, and they do and certainly next door is a place for it so there's some jokes and there's some love in there and that's uh well well worth uh sharing 
Uh, take a look at that if you get a chance. Uh, anyway, we have an episode today. We've got some local music in uh, Nick's Jams Corner. We'll figure out a real name for it someday, I promise. Uh, we also have a guest on uh, who is our film editor here at The Pitch. She is going to give some recommendations on stuff you can watch during quarantine, some cool uh, movies and stuff on the streaming, and also some streaming platforms you might not have heard from. So uh, let's get into the first thing that we're doing here today. I'm going to be reading an article from our most recent issue of The Pitch. Uh, the article is called Wax Poetic, The Secret Life of Casey Vinyl, and it is by Celeste Torrance. The afternoon of February 6, 2020 played out like a funeral. My phone was pinging with condolences at an alarming rate, and I was steeped in overwhelming disquiet. Usually, in times like this, I would put on a record and sink into cacophonous oblivion. Now, though, my usual comfort had turned salt in my wounds. Earlier that day, a fire had broken out at Apollo Masters Corporation. To most, this was but a blip in the news cycle. But to the world's audiophiles and vinyl lovers, it was devastation. Apollo was only one of two factories in the world that produced lacour discs. Over 70% of them, in fact. Unless, like me, you have more records than friends, this doesn't mean much to you, so allow me to analogize. Picture a chalkboard with writing on it. The surface is smooth and the writing is legible. Copying down said writing would be easy to do. Now imagine instead that the chalkboard was packed with nicks, dents, and rough patches. Writing on such a surface becomes nearly impossible, as does copying the illegible notes. What Apollo made was the vinyl version of the chalkboard, a blank, perfectly smooth disc into which grooves are cut. The grooves, like the writing on the board, serve as the template to be copied onto all other records in the pressing. The notes copied from the board equate to the sounds that the consumer hears on their specific copy of the record. So on that February morning, the world lost 70% of its chalkboard, jeopardizing the entire vinyl industry. No lacquer discs meant no masters. No masters meant no copies. No copies meant, well... I mean, what did it mean? Whatever the empirical results, the world of vinyl is about to be put to the test. The passing of which is made even more impressive by Record Store Day. The first Record Store Day took place in April 19th of 2008. Conceived by independent record store owners, the yearly event focuses on the promotion of vinyl culture through limited pressings, special releases, and only releasing them in independent record shops. The event exclusives line local bins, an incentive to go offline and in-store. Like the years before it, Record Store Day was set to be held on the third Saturday in April. Due to unfortunate timing, the event has been indefinitely delayed. Even after normality returns, questions will still remain about the vinyl industry's ability to recover. Will the secondary supplier of liqueur discs, MDC of Japan, be able to keep up with this increased demand? If not, what other methods can be used in vinyl production? Can the upwards trend in vinyl sales continue in spite of February's catastrophe? I don't know the answers to these questions. In fact, these questions rose in fact, these questions rose after I had pitched this piece. The initial intent was to explore the beauty of Casey's local vinyl scene. I wanted to showcase the people within it and the small differences that have added up to a unique ecosystem of musicality. But now, due to a fire all the way in California, that ecosystem may be in jeopardy. So like your mom introducing you to her friend's handsome doctor of a son, my goal is to make you fall in love with it. 
I'd been in the small shop before, enough times, in fact, to have nearly a full punch card bearing the story's insignia. Who says loyalty capitalism is dead? Whoever it is, they haven't stepped foot in a record store in the last five years, especially not one like records with merit. The gentle whoosh of air created by the door opening causes an employee to look up, her face already bearing a welcoming smile. I recognize her immediately as Anne Stewart, the woman who gave my daughter her first record. It was a Thomas the Train sing-along that, after 50 consecutive plays in an afternoon, mysteriously disappeared from my record shelf. If Anne wasn't so nice, my eardrums would still hold a grudge. To her left sits Mary and Merritt, a well of calm in a chaotic sea of sound. Beneath Merritt's serene demeanor lies a depth of musical knowledge beyond the comprehension of most, including myself. Slightly intimidated by this and not quite knowing where to start, I clumsily ask how they came to love music, vinyl in particular. All intimidation factor melts away as Marion lights up at the proposal of musical conversation and dives into her origin story. Quote, I'm older, so I've always had a transistor radio next to my ear. My goal was always to, if I heard it on the radio, to be able to sing it word for word as soon as possible. Songs have always been my inspiration for things, my motivator. I have a whole group of songs that get me going in the morning. So it's a big part of my life. And I grew up with vinyl. We just didn't treat it the way we treat it now. So we just kind of, it was a disposable item we got for $2.99 and played it on a little portable sound recorder in your bedroom, end quote. Anne follows, recalling her childhood exposure to music both via her parents' love of Broadway and her older siblings' guidance. Quote, I was the youngest of four kids, and it was the vinyl era in the 70s. I remember my brothers playing their albums and laying on the carpet listening to them, looking out at the record covers. And I remember my oldest brother bought me my first record, which was uh, Heart, maybe? Marion fills in the blank without hesitation. Heart. It was hard. And nods in appreciation of her partner's encyclopedic knowledge. Yeah. Uh, then Pink Floyd the Wall. And it was just, uh, what's this? I'm not, I'm, I'm sure my mother was like, why are you buying your nine-year-old sister Pink Floyd's The Wall? But I was just mesmerized, end quote. The conversation drifts to Mary and start in the music sales industry. For over 15 years, she worked in the basement of Barnes & Noble on the plaza, managing the music department. It was here, she says, that her education really took off. Daily, inadvertent challenges from customers pushed her to explore and expand her musical world. She elaborates, quote, You think you know something until someone asks you to explain. What's the difference between that opera and this opera? Then you have to say, okay, I'm either going to stand here or I'm going to learn. Barnes & Noble was not the only origin of Marion's mental catalog, but a catalyst for passionate customer service. And details a remarkable following built at the corporate store, including celebrities, record collectors, and even a blind customer in Alabama, all of whom continue to trust Marion with their euphoric fates. Despite having a cult following, the switch from corporate to local wasn't easy. It was a big leap. It was a scary leap, Marion says, looking over at her partner. But I think Anne had more confidence in me than I did. And once I started working on it, it just became that way. I think the hardest part was finding a place we liked. We had this small space and we didn't want to grow that much. We wanted to keep it tight. So our customers appreciate that. Some of our customers know the inventory better than we do. And here you can shop for five minutes or two hours. Looking around the tiny shop, it's easy to see how one could lose an entire afternoon to this space. Sitting in front of me is a bowl of candy. The good kind, none of the dumb, dumb and lifesaver bullshit banks try to pass off as a treat. To the left of me, water, soda, and beer bob in aluminum tins while boxed wine lines the small table adjacent to the front counter. Before anyone asks to see their liquor license, they're not selling it. It's free. 
Records with Merit doesn't just want your money, it wants you. For Anne and Mary, and the best part of the joint endeavor is the community that constantly evolves within the store. They've created a family that includes regular customers as well as other record shops. When I ask what record shop they suggest I visit next, I'm met with a list longer than this 3,000-word piece could possibly hope to cover. Overwhelmed, I decide to start with one I already know. Still chewing a mini Twix from Merritt's Candy Bowl, I walk into Josie Records. I'm greeted by Britt Ediar, a willowy woman with thick black eyeliner and an outfit that conveys effortless, vogus grunge. Next to her stands Chris LeBlue, the store manager. Four and a half years ago, they, along with a small crew, put the first records on Josie's shelves, which must have taken a while because the building is approximately four times the size of Records with Merritt. This observation is accentuated by the soothing chill wave music echoing against the high ceilings. While Chris assists customers, Britt sits down with me for our interview. Despite its size, the store manages to feel intimate. This, combined with a focus on local artists, suggests a local owner very in touch with their city's music scene. So I'm taken aback to find out that Josie is owned by a few house DJs based out of Dallas, Texas. Still, a small company, there are only four locations, Dallas, Lubbock, Tulsa, and Kansas City. As it's the only non-locally owned shop I'm interviewing, I ask why the owners chose to establish a brick-and-mortar store in Kansas City. According to Britt, the owner's choice boils down to the local scene. They're huge lovers of soul music, and Kansas City is kind of a hub for that. So they came here, loved the culture, and wanted to open a shop. When Streetside Records closed, there was this lull and this need for it in KC. Chris actually used to work at Streetside Records. He's been in the record game for 20 years. He was working for himself for a while, and then he got the offer to come here. And how could you resist working in a record shop? I mean, you don't just stop loving working in record stores. That statement rings especially true as Chris and Britt have both worked in other Casey record stores. The visual art booker Laura used to work at Streetside Records and Vinyl Renaissance. Another employee, Ryan, worked at Mills Record Company. The entire staff of Josie Records seems to be addicted to working with wax. The owners of Josie Records knew this and used it to their advantage. Essentially, they compiled a team of incredibly knowledgeable record enthusiasts and gave them complete control over a store. Chris does most of the ordering, and Britt books the bands for in-store events. Laura schedules a different local artist each month to provide a visual installation for the store. The profits from any piece go entirely to the artist, creating economic support for Kansas City's art scene. They've even recently added a DVD section, all of this done at the employee's discretion. To some, that may sound like a recipe for disaster, or just employees with very full shelves. Ultimately, though, it has created a thriving store full of variety and dedication to local interests. While it's in their own shop that they've found their niche, it doesn't stop the Josie team from appreciating other stores. When I ask about what makes the KC scene special, Britt immediately answers. If we don't have a record somebody wants, we call Revolution Records because they're right around the corner. It's good to work as a team and to work together. Most of the shops do support each other. We all love music and want to be a part of it. All of them do have their specialties, though, like Records with Merit is just brand new vinyl. Revolution Records appeals to a younger community, and they have lots of live shows. We go shopping at Brothers, Seventh Heaven, Records with Merit. Every shop has its own vibe. A week later, I'm investigating said vibes at Mills Record Company. Because I've forgotten a jacket, the main vibe I'm getting is cold. I follow Judy Mills to her office, and she offers me a blanket while turning on a space heater. She's affable, but focused woman, with a cascade of silver hair, and she brushes it back from her face as she sits down. She doesn't hesitate to start a conversation. What's your angle? What's your perspective? Are you a record fan? I give a barely coherent answer. Uh, 
discomposed at having to answer questions instead of asking them. Is this what being interviewed feels like? She listens and smiles kindly as my inarticulations stop. Regaining my bearings, I start the interview by asking her what made her decide to open a record shop in Kansas City. So she started from the beginning. In 2012, there wasn't anywhere you could go on a new release day and get a new release record. And I tried, but I was kind of scoffed at, and I thought, I cannot be the only person. About four months before that, I realized I didn't own anything. I had gotten seduced by the digital world. I didn't own anything vinyl. So that's when I started collecting records. And I discovered how hard it was to do that in Kansas City. I had a year off of doing who knows what. There was this decision and I had to make it. Do I go into the corporate world? And I thought, you know what? I think there's a niche for this. So I opened it up and it was all new vinyl. So that's how I wanted to contribute to the scene. But if you want to be a community resource, you have to sell used too. So about four months in, I caved and started selling used. But at that time, we were the only ones selling new. At that time, there also wasn't a place where regular in-stores happened, and that was something like, okay, we're, we're going to do this. When I find that Mills, like Merritt, started her career in corporate sales, I am unsurprised. Her attitude toward business belies an understanding of how to grow a local scene and maintain a wide customer base. She professes that her least favorite type of customer is a music snob and emphasizes the importance of accessibility. While she's okay with putting record nerds behind her counters, they also have to be approachable. According to Mills, no one should be too intimidated to walk into a record store. This philosophy has garnished her widespread support, as evidenced by Mills' record company being voted Kansas City's best record store multiple times over. If you give customers a good experience, they will decide to leave the house, walk into a store, and discover a record. If they don't love the process, then they won't do that. It's a, it's a lot of extra work. Employees aren't here to show off what they know. They're here to provide an experience to help them discover music and give them a reason to come back in. Most employees live within 10 minutes of here. All profits stay in Kansas City. Everything I get, I put into employees or back into the store. It's kind of a circular process that I've really come to value since I started this. At this point, dear reader, I have approximately 400 words left to sum up the vinyl zeitgeist in our town, a daunting task for any writer anywhere, but more so for those like myself who live in a city overflowing with musical promise. Within that summary, I would be remiss to ignore the female badassery of Promise Clutter, managers of Revolution Records. Her store boasts not only the most adorable shop dog in town, but also books, visual arts, zines, and a calendar laden with a plethora of in-store events. If you've ever been to a musical event in Kansas City, you've likely been in the same room as Sherman Brenneman, manager of Seventh Heaven's Vinyl Underground. By Ann Stewart's own admission, he carries an encyclopedic knowledge of music to rival that of her partner, Marion Merritt. These commendations extend beyond KC. Brothers Music in Mission, Kansas was recommended to me by nearly everyone. And Lawrence boasts Love Garden and Orange Cat, two more local favorites. The best part of all this aforementioned record story is that they were each recommended to me by the owner of another shop. In my personal and professional investigations of Kansas City's vinyl culture, the most defining trait of the scene is the support each shop lends to the community at large. Recognition of each other's strengths and a store's own weakness has allowed a staggering concentration of similar businesses to thrive across the city. However, these businesses cannot thrive on each other's recommendations alone. They rely on local support and local customers to keep them afloat. This has never been so true as in the wake of the Apollo Masters fire. The future of the vinyl production industry has been called into question, and so too has that of all record shops everywhere. But Kansas City can do something to help. 
Buy as many albums as you want. Buy as many albums as you can afford. Support your local record stores by taking inventory off their shelves and creating a demand for more. Then go home and put the wax on the turntable and drift off into bliss. Speaking of music, we're now going to cut to Nick's Jam Corner, and then I will be back with an interview with Abby from The Pitch. Hi, I'm Nick Basic, music editor for The Pitch, and I'm here with this week's local music recommendation. Kansas City's Manor Records released Keep the Change, a fundraiser for KC Service Industry on their Bandcamp earlier this week, with all the proceeds from the download going to the staff of local businesses that have hosted the label's events, such as Fox and Pearl, Stray Cat Film Center, Blip Roasters, Voltaire, and the Mockingbird Lounge. The Keep the Change compilation features some fantastic Kansas City acts doing covers of their favorite songs, with the likes of Pale Tongue doing Shy Boys, The Wild Type tackling Fountains of Wayne, and True Lions taking on Julia Macklin, among others. They're all superb, but Crystal's version of the 1993 Sheryl Crow hit, All I Want to Do, is the laid-back longing for fun we all need desperately right now. You can download Keep the Change at manorrecordskc.bandcamp.com. Check it out to chill out. All I want to do is have a little fun before I die Says the man next to me out of nowhere It's apropos of nothing He says his name is William But I'm sure he's Bill or Billy or Mac or Buddy And he's plain ugly to me And I wonder if he's ever had a day of fun in his whole life we are drinking beer at noon on a Tuesday In a bar that faces a giant car wash And the good people of the world Are washing their cars on their lunch break Hosing and scrubbing as best they can In skirts and suits They drive their shiny Dysons and Buicks Back to the phone company and the record store too they're nothing like Billy and me Cause all I wanna do is have some fun I got a feeling I'm not the only one All I wanna do is have some fun Until the sun comes up on a Santa Monica Boulevard
All right, now for something completely different. Uh, Going to jump into a quick interview here with Abby Olchesi, who is the film editor at The Pitch. Uh, we're going to talk about some recommendations for films, uh, streaming services, and ways to fill your time. Here is that interview. All right, Abs, would you like to introduce yourself to the audience? Sure. Uh, my name's Abby Olchesi. I am the movie editor at The Pitch. What are your bona fides? <laughs> uh, I have been writing about movies and popular culture for about the last five years for a variety of different publications before writing for The Pitch. Um, I write regularly at uh, Sojourners, Think Christian, Slash Film, Birth Movies Death, um, Lots and lots of other places, too. What's your favorite movie? Uh, my favorite movie is the 1955, I think, movie, Night of the Hunter, uh, which is coincidentally just started streaming on Prime not that long ago and is uh, slated to get a remake that I think will be absolutely horrible. But uh, if you want to check out the original, I highly recommend that you do. Uh, it is absolutely one of my favorite movies. Now, why are you worried about the original? Why are you worried about a remake of uh, one of your favorite movies that you consider to be perfect by uh, modern studios? <laughs> I don't I, I can't imagine why you would think that that could possibly be a problematic thing. Um, I love the original Night of the Hunter because it has this really interesting balance of uh, of faith and um and darkness. And a lot of that, I think, is really personal to the person who made it, uh, Charles Lawton. He was an uh, actor, and this was the only time that he ever actually directed a movie. And he specifically decided that he wanted to make this movie because uh, a lot of it has to do with religious hypocrisy. It's a, a story about an um, itinerant preacher played by Robert Mitchum, who is a very evil man and a murderous man. <laughs> um, and uh, Charles Lawton had spent much of his life as a closeted gay man and believed that the church was responsible for his um, his repression for most of his life. And so a lot of that attitude comes through the filmmaking. And so I, I think it's a really interesting personal experience of uh, somebody's appreciation for certain forms of faith and uh, absolute uh, damnation of the more human-powered uh, hypocritical elements of it. And I I kind of don't see that working well in a uh, a studio remake where the script is penned and the movie is directed by somebody who doesn't directly connect to those experiences. I, I, I think that it'll be good when it's just a, a PG-13 horror film uh, about a guy who's uh, mean. Right, absolutely. <laughs> uh, you brought up that, uh, I, I mean, I several times here and just explaining why this movie is your favorite uh for uh, for a number of your outlets and and for uh, a lot of your writing uh faith uh the angle of, of of religion plays an important part of that mostly because of your audiences what what has that experience been because i've never uh, known a critic that starts from that position <laughs> it's a uh, it's interesting um, there are some people who do it on a much larger scale than I do. Uh, Alyssa Wilkinson is somebody who, uh, like she's the, the main film critic over at Vox, but for a number of years was the, uh, the film editor at Christianity Today. And so she definitely comes from that angle too. Um, it's a weird balance of trying to get faith-based audiences to expand their palettes a little bit by introducing them to secular media that still connects to their interests and values, um, or what I 
think their interests and values should be. <laughs> um, and on the opposite end of that, I'm trying to show uh, secular audiences kind of how to think a little bit more deeply and philosophically about movies. I'm not necessarily trying to convert anybody through the stuff that I write, um, but writing about movies from a faith-based angle really interests me in their um, philosophical and social justice angles. And so that overall is something that I try to get the audiences that I write for, whether faith-based or secular, to kind of engage with more. A uh, An important thing within our friend group is... Uh... Uh, screener screener time at Abby's every year because you get all the the free movies for consideration uh, for the Oscars a lot of stuff that people haven't seen and we all gather at your place and watch it but also uh, you get to do that with your parents and their friends who you were sort of teaching uh, a, a film appreciation course to through through just being there I know that last year you had to sort of explain to them what what a metaphor is and what a dream sequence can mean <laughs> Right. Yeah. It's, uh, you're never quite sure what you're going to get, uh, depending on the different groups. Uh, like, uh, I think I watched first reformed with them a couple of years ago, which is, um, I mean, there's a lot of interesting stuff in that movie, uh, from a, uh, magical realism and dream sequence and metaphor standpoint. Um, and I was genuinely impressed by how many of them actually found it to be a deeply moving movie from a from a faith-based angle um it, it made me feel like i'd kind of done my job well so uh we are talking today about movies because that is one of the only art forms that continues right now while we're trapped inside and there is uh just such a wealth of things that people can interact with but uh conversely new movies seem to be stuck in a terrible position where uh, they're not coming to theaters anytime soon, or they're they're doing a sort of on-demand thing and trying to find ways for people to, you know, interact with that. They just did a digital release of the movie Trolls World Tour, and the uh, the hook that they were trying to use to get people to pay full price for a, a VOD rental uh, was that the McElroy brothers uh, were live tweeting along with it uh, on day one, and I was like, you know what? Uh, any idea that gets you through, I guess, is is something that people need right now. Yeah, absolutely. What a dream for those boys. I know they're they're big fans of the uh, of the trolls movies as as fathers themselves. <laughs> so what uh, what should people be watching right now if they've got time on their hands? What are your recommendations for things that are streaming and services that they should be using if they don't know about stuff like Canopy? Sure. Uh, well, there are a lot of options. Uh, there's a real wealth of stuff right now. Um, so yeah, Canopy is a great option. If you have a uh, a library card, basically, you can use this service that uh, connects you to a lot of great uh, independent and art house films uh, for free. And I think they kind of limit the amount that you can do in a month, but you still get like five or so uh, borrows of, of really great movies and documentaries. Um, and it's always kind of a pleasant surprise to see what they have on there because there's always something that you don't expect. So it's always worth... Um, exploring every free option you possibly can, I think, and Canopy is a great one for that. Um, also, I would recommend the Criterion channel, which uh, now that you're getting your your stimulus checks, um, is a good thing to spend your money on. Uh, it's I, I, think, I think they're doing something like a 90-day free trial. I might be wrong about oh, that. Oh, are they? That's yeah, wonderful. The, the entry point is pretty easy for them right now. Yeah, that's fantastic. And the actual membership itself is not that bad uh, if you watch a lot of classic movies and enjoy that kind of thing. Uh, I think it's about like 11 bucks a month or 100 bucks. for Or if you'd year. like to expand your palette, because every time they add a movie and send me an email, I'm like, yep, that's a collection of movies from a director that I, I, I know I should have watched by now. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great 
great way to catch up on that stuff. Uh, and they have uh, for their it's their one year anniversary currently. So they have like a real blowout of really good stuff on there right now. One of the things I like about them is that they are sort of uh, they have a thousand titles that they've released physically and uh, they seem to add them in in very small chunks every couple of weeks. So it's it's not the overload that you would get from Netflix. They're sort of like, hey, here's here's 10 more. Uh, you, you might be interested in that. And uh, it really cuts down on that sort of choice overload. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's there's a few good ones on there right now. Uh, I know the um, one of the articles that I have coming out in the forthcoming issue of the pitch uh, mentions uh, Kansas City Confidential um, as a movie that you can watch that is set in Kansas City and has some fun stuff to go along with it. And if that's a thing you're into, uh, Criterion actually has a whole collection of uh, Columbia noir movies, uh, three or four of which I think are directed by Phil Carlson, the guy that directed Kansas City Confidential. Um, so you could potentially go on a real deep dive of uh, hard-boiled gumshoe detective stuff if you wanted to. Um, there's also a whole bunch of movies starring uh, the Japanese actor Toshiro Mufune uh, in recognition of, I think, his 100th birthday. Uh, and a lot of those are classic Akira Kurosawa movies. So stuff like Seven Samurai and Ron and Throne of Blood. Uh, if if Japanese cinema is a thing you want to get into, that's a fantastic entry point. Um, also, if you're a fan of the movie The Favorite, the guy who directed that, Yorgos Lanthimos, has uh, a collection of his earlier work on Criterion, which includes stuff like Dogtooth, which is one of my favorite movies of his. Um and Alps, which I have not seen, but I hear is one of his best. And that is kind of a lot of really weird Greek surrealism. So if you like dry humor, if you like some of the stuff that you saw in The Favorite and want to try more, that's a great thing to get into as well. Um, there's also some great single movies that they're they're sending out. I think uh, Paper Moon is on there right now, which was shot in Kansas. So that's that's a cool thing to to get into. It also has like one of my favorite all time performances from uh, Madeline Kahn, uh, and Paris Texas, which is another favorite movie of mine, is also on there. Let's talk the more mainstream ones that everyone has: the uh, the Netflix, the Hulu, the Amazon oh, yeah. Prime. What are you loving on there? Absolutely. Uh, Amazon Prime has a uh, Brazilian movie on it called Invisible Life that came out a couple of weeks ago that I like a lot uh, about uh, two sisters growing up in uh, in Rio de Janeiro during the 50s who are um, kind of separated by uh, a series of circumstances that are really sad and really interesting and kind of infuriating. Um, but if if you're interested in period pieces or um, movies about kind of the creative interior life, Invisible Life is a really good one. Um, there's also, like I said before, Night of the Hunter. Um, and Netflix has a documentary called Crip Camp that if you are looking for um, something that's going to make you feel good and kind of cry like purifying tears, this is a really good one to do. Uh, and it's about a um, summer camp for uh, physically disabled kids that operated from the 50s to the 70s. And a lot of the kids who were involved in that camp eventually went on to um, to be really important activists in um, 
in the, the civil rights movement for disabled people, which eventually led to the Americans with Disabilities Act. Um, and it's just really touching to see how they support each other, how uh, tenacious these people are in trying to achieve their goals and do things that other people told them they couldn't do, um, including this uh, really spectacular, I think, month-long sit-in that starts in uh, San Francisco or uh, no, Sacramento, sorry, at the, the State House in California, and then goes all the way to Washington, D.C. Um, and it's just, it's incredible to watch these people grow and develop. Um, and yeah, you'll you'll cry a lot and you'll feel really good after. <laughs> Which is I, something I'm crying that, listening to the description of it. So I know. Already, yeah, yeah I, I trust your, your instincts on this one. Yeah. Uh, so one of the things that we've been writing about at the pitch lately uh, and making sure to tie into, and you've been great at helping with the coverage over this, uh, Screenland Theater is the local... Uh, chain here uh, that's uh, that's that's owned by a couple of really cool guys. Um, they were one of the first businesses to have to shut down during this, and even after this is over and life starts to go back to normal, it's going to be a long time before people want to sit in close proximity to each other in a small enclosed space. Uh, so they've started sort of an online community via Patreon where they're doing. Uh, live reads of movie scripts, and they're they're watching films together and, and chatting over them, which uh, is something that you and I and our friend group have been doing, just uh, getting together, watching a movie at the same time and texting through it, which has been a, a delightful way of watching Birds of Prey and Ready or Not. Um, but a, a, a really cool thing that Screenland has going on is that uh, some studios are working with them, and if you rent movies through the Screenland website, Screenland gets all the money from it, uh, and so they're still sort of releasing some cool art films and some stuff that's, you know, between being in theaters and not yet on VOD, uh, so it's 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 basically the digital version of buying a ticket to go there. Uh, what, what films have you seen that are in that lineup that you would really recommend to people if they want to watch a great movie but also support uh, a local business that is having uh, just a real rough time? Um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of good stuff on there right now. And, uh, it kind of runs the gamut from, uh, like kind of highbrow art house stuff to, uh, the kind of fun, goofy genre stuff that, um, that I especially like going to Screenland for. I, I appreciate the fact that they've been able to still include some of that really specific weird stuff in their lineup. Um, there's a, a Brazilian movie called Baccarau that, uh, I, I've described as kind of, like the social realist version of The Hunt. So uh, if you watched The Hunt and thought, man, I really want to know more about like the redneck characters in this movie, this is the movie for you. Um, and it's it's a little more slow moving, but it also hits on some really interesting, weird stuff. And it's just kind of cool to see it come from a kind of unexpected corner of the world. Um, so that one is worth checking out. There's also uh, Extraordinary, which uh, I think was playing in theaters for a few weeks before the uh, the outbreak kind of shut everything down. Um, which is a real waste because, oh my God, I, I can't remember laughing harder through a movie in the last year. Yeah, it's absolutely delightful. Um, and it's it's got um, a thing that I really like about horror from... Uh, from England and uh, and Ireland, where this comes from, um, is that there's like a real weird DIY sense about it, where it it feels almost kind of crafty and uh, and vintage in like a semi upsetting way. <laughs> um, so if that's an aesthetic you like, like if you're weird like me and have watched a lot of like Dark Place and look around you on YouTube, um, 
this absolutely fits into that niche. It's got um, really wonderful, awkward humor. It's got a guest spot kind of featured performance by Will Forte that's really funny. Um, And it's also just got this bizarre kind of 60s, 70s look to it that I just love. Absolutely. Um, This is almost assuredly the first and last time that somebody will bring up Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. (laughs) <laughs> uh, on this podcast for Kansas City. Oh, uh, Abs, where can people find you and follow your work? Uh, you can follow my work uh, on Twitter at Abby Olchesi is probably the uh, the most consistent way to find all the stuff that I'm posting. Um, and you can also find me via my author page at The Pitch if you want to keep up with my reviews and uh, articles of local stuff. Abby, thank you so very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys so very much for listening to Streetwise, the podcast companion to The Pitch. Uh, If you like what we do, please check out all the work that we're doing at thepitchkc.com. Pick up copies of our magazine out there in the world. We have a new one coming out on May 1st that we are all very excited about. Today is actually deadline, so I'm in a living hell trying to finish that and this podcast at the same time. We have some just really incredible stories, and I hope that you enjoy what we're doing. If you enjoy what we're doing also, uh, consider uh, throwing a couple of bucks our way through the website, or we have a program where you can sponsor a local business, uh, somebody that might be shuttered or somebody that you'd like to give a little more attention to. If you're putting money towards putting an ad in our magazine, uh, the costs are cut in half, basically. Uh, so I've gone out of my way. I bought a couple of ads myself for my favorite bars, and I hope that they uh, remember how kind I was to them next time I'm in there uh, getting a free round or two. I would uh, recommend maybe do that for somebody that means something to you. Uh, That has been our show. Please recommend us to friends. Please keep coming back. If we pitch in, we will make it through. Thank you so much for listening.